Good morning. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. We'll look there in a moment, beginning in verse 41. But as we continue our way through John's Gospel, we're beginning this morning in a section that really begins in verse 26, when Christ responded to those who had followed him across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum after he'd fed them miraculously from the loaves and the fish. Many of those who had, res- who had witnessed and participated in the miracle, they sought Jesus out, and when they had finally found him, which verse 59 tells us is apparently while he's teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, Jesus, he rebukes them for their unbelief, even though they'd sought him out. Because they had seen the miracle, and yet they failed to understand that it was pointing them to his true identity. And when they had pointed to Moses and to the manna that God provided, and then they tried to use that to get Jesus to perform another sign, Jesus, he began to explain to them that he himself is the true bread from heaven. And that he's the true bread who's come down to give life to the world. He made his first I am statement in John's gospel. A statement that they would have understood to be a declaration of his godness, his deity. When he says, I am the bread of life, he's saying, I am the God of the Old Testament. But as Jesus, he begins to hold himself out as the bread of life who alone can satisfy their spiritual hunger and their spiritual thirst. He speaks of the the Father's giving him a people to redeem and he promises eternal life in the resurrection. As he says those things, our text begins with the response of Christ's hearers to essentially last week's sermon. The therefore that you find at the beginning of verse 41, it begins their response to what Jesus has told them concerning himself, concerning their true need and how he alone can supply that true need. So let's look there this morning in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 41, and we'll read through verse 58. As therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. 
He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Brothers and sisters, pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you for the glorious provision of bread. Thank you for providing that which is needed for your people to live. Lord, would you do what John means for us to do? Would you do it in us, Lord, this morning? Would you cause us to believe and live? And would you do in us what Christ commands us to do here? Cause us to eat and drink the flesh and blood of the Son of God and be filled, be satisfied. Lord, would you do that? As we'll see, as you've told us, Lord, only you can do that. And so we're depending on you to do it. Lord, we pray this and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was preparing to preach this text, uh, I wrote out on a piece of paper and had it sitting in front of me the whole time. I just, I just wrote out in the middle of the paper and circled it real big that John's point in the, in the gospel, just the words believe and live. And that's the point of John's gospel. That's why he, why he wrote the book. And that's the point, more than anything, I believe, of today's text. And it's hard to imagine a more needed word for our hearts. It's hard to imagine a more needed word for a lost and dying world. As best I can tell, the text this morning breaks down roughly into two sections. In the first, it's verses 41 through 48. It contains the response of the Jews to Christ's declaration to be the bread of life, his response to their grumbling. And the second section is verses 49 through 58, and that's where Christ, he picks up the metaphor of the manna from Exodus 16, and he, he uses that to explain what he's already told them about himself. And it's that he's the true bread from heaven and that he's come down to give life to the world. And when they argue about these things, Jesus, he takes them even deeper and he explains how it is, how it actually is that those who believe on him, those who eat his flesh and drink his blood, how it is that they actually live. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, those two broad sections and then chopped up little bits in those two sections. So first this morning, their response to what Christ claimed about himself. Look there again, beginning in verse 41. He says, therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. How, how does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? How can he say this? The crowd here, it's at least two groups of people. There are people in this crowd to whom Jesus is responding who had followed him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and they had actually participated in the miracle. He'd spoken with his people a little earlier in the chapter, but they followed him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. There were also Jews from this area who know Jesus because Jesus was a Galilean. He grew up in the area. Nazareth is not too far from Capernaum, south. And in Matthew 4.13, it tells us that when Jesus, when he left Nazareth, he went to Capernaum and he, and he made that his home. 
So many of the people he's talking to right now, they, they actually, in some way, they know him. They know his family. But it says there, they grumbled. And your ears are probably already picking up on what is certainly John's intentional use of the word and why he highlights that, that Jesus himself uses this word. He says there that they, they grumbled. It's intentional. And it's, it's a call back to the instance of manna in Exodus 16, which, which these Jews themselves, they had already mentioned. They, they kind of were trying to use that text as a, as a goad to get Jesus to do another sign. But they pointed back to that. And, and, and then Jesus, he's like, you're grumbling. He points us back to that. When after Israel, they'd been delivered by God out of Egypt, it says in Exodus 16, they grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Of course, Moses, he, he pointed out and he told them that their grumblings were actually against God, the, the Lord. That's who you're really grumbling against here. But John, he, he highlights this language here because he's, he's letting us know that what's happening here is not a misunderstanding. It's not a failure to have seen with their eyes the miracle that Jesus had performed, the, the, the actual thing that he, that he had done. It wasn't a failure on the part of these, these people from Capernaum to hear and understand the testimony of those who had been fed by Jesus or a failure to understand even the claim that, that Jesus was making to be the bread of life who came down from heaven. John is cueing us in to their unbelief. He's cueing us into the, to the hardness of heart. And he's, he's not just cueing us into the hardness of heart and not just the unbelief, but to their unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness. He's cueing us into the unfaithfulness that characterized Israel from the moment that God had delivered them. But that's not all. Not only is he cueing us into their unfaithfulness, he's cueing us into God's gracious response to their unfaithfulness. It's almost like in using one word, Jesus, he interprets accurately the situation and the text that they're trying to use as a go. They're, they're abusing the scriptures. They're trying to get him to do something. And in a single word, he interprets the text accurately and correctly and shows them exactly who they are and exactly who God is. Not only does this point to their unfaithfulness, it's cueing us into God's gracious response to their unfaithfulness and to his gracious provision in spite of their unfaithfulness. Their grumbling, it takes our minds back to the entire episode in Exodus scene, to, to not only their unfaithfulness, to the overwhelming unfaithfulness of God to send the provision of bread for the life of his people. Except now it's not manna in the wilderness, it's a man. It's a man claiming to be the bread of life who God has sent to give life to the world. They know what his claim implies. You see, they're, they're blind, but they're not stupid. They understand what he's saying. And again, Jordan, Jordan, Pastor Jordan, he pointed this out last week in his sermon from verse 35 where Jesus, he makes this I am declaration. They would understand this to be a direct claim to be the God of the Old Testament. They know what he's claiming. And their response is, is to say, well, how can he say he's come down from heaven? How can he say that he can't be from heaven because he's from here? We know him. We know his family. This claim to divinity, this, this oneness with God, the claim somehow that he was sent by God to give life to the world. What is Jesus talking about here? How, how can he say that they, they grumbled? I want to highlight something. You know, to some degree, they were right. They knew Jesus. Or at least they knew some things about Jesus. They knew a lot of things about Jesus. But here's the thing. You can know all kinds of true things about Jesus and totally miss who he is. Some of these people, they saw the miracles with their own eyes and totally missed who he is. 
Some of these people, they were giving first-hand accounts of this guy made bread for all of us. We all ate from a couple of little pieces of food. They were getting first-hand accounts. Totally missed it. And here's the thing. They could handle a Jesus whose family they knew. They could handle a, a Jesus who perhaps maybe his family or even he himself had hap uh, happened to build some of their furniture, who was a polite guy down the street, just the regular guy, or even a, a Jesus who will keep us all fed, even miraculously, who we could then make a king on our own terms. There's no cause for offense in that kind of Jesus. But do you know where the offense came? It's when he opened his mouth and told them who he was. It's when he held himself out as the only, the only, the only antidote to spiritual hunger and thirst. When he claimed to be the giver of eternal life, the, the offense came when they came face to face with Christ's own declaration that he came down from heaven and they had to grapple with the claim that was coming out of his mouth. It's not that they that the things they knew about him were necessarily wrong. It's not that they couldn't understand the words coming out of his mouth. It, it was an inability to, to spiritually apprehend and receive what he's saying about himself and who he's declaring himself to be. You see, their problem is not information. Their problem is not their eyes. It's a sinful heart. It's an unbelieving heart, and sinful hearts by their nature are hardwired so that our inclination apart from Christ, our natural desires apart from Christ, the, the thing we're naturally wired to do as unconverted sinners is to take whatever knowledge we have and twist it and distort it and ignore it. And Paul said in Romans 1, we reject it and we turn to idols instead. And man, is always trying to make Christ out to be less or something other than he claimed to be. And when he opens his mouth to say otherwise, it is intolerable. These Jews, they take what they think they know about Jesus, then they, they, reject, they reject everything he's telling them. They won't have it. What about you this morning? You have a lot of information about Jesus. You know a lot of true things about Jesus. You know all about his person and work. Listen, you can be aware of all kinds of stuff about Jesus and still totally miss who he is. It's not an information problem. Jordan, he asked it this way last week in his sermon. He said, have you just nibbled on the food that is Jesus, just a little. You receive Jesus insofar as he reveals himself in a way that fits with your accepted and understood conception of who he is and what he's supposed to do. What do you do when he opens his mouth and makes a claim that shatters you? Do you resist? Do you deny? Do you reject his claims? Not just about his identity. What, what about his claim to, to lordship? To his kingly rule over your, over your life? You have an orthodox understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. You can define the atonement perfectly. You can describe his substitutionary work in detail. But what about his claim to lordship over that secret sin in your life? What about his claim to lordship over those thoughts? What about his claim to lordship over those desires, those motives, those fears, the things you want and pursue and go after and hold on to? It's one thing to have an idea about Jesus or even to know some true things about him. It's another thing altogether to accurately and to actually deal with his claims, the words coming out of his mouth to repent of our unbelief and to apply all that he said to all of life. 
Maybe you know all about Jesus, but your life is still characterized by sin and unbelief. There are a lot of young people here this morning. A lot of kids, a lot of teenagers. And you know all kinds of things about Jesus. Your church is telling you all kinds of things about Jesus, wonderful things, glorious things. Your parents have been telling you all kinds of things about Jesus, wonderful things, glorious things about Christ. But the time is coming, young people, listen to me, when you are going to have to deal with Christ. You, not your parents, not the books you're reading, but you, you're going to have to grapple with the claims of Christ. He alone can satisfy you. He alone can quench that thirst. All of those things that the world is holding out to you that look so shiny and that promise satisfaction and joy in life, are ad- they're a lie. Christ condemns all of those things. You're going to have to behold the Son of God and believe on Him. In our text this morning, Christ, He responds to their grumbling. He responds to their unbelief. Look there with me again as Christ, He begins to respond to their grumbling. Verse 43, we'll read through 48. Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written, excuse me, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God, He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Christ's response to their grumbling, to their unwillingness to believe his testimony, the refusal to believe God, the refusal to come to him, the one who's come down from heaven is the bread of life. His response is this, no one can come unless something else happens first. No one can come unless the Father draws them. It's verse 44. Verse 44 runs parallel to verse 37 where Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Those who come to Jesus are those who have been given to the Son by the Father, and they come because they are drawn by the Father to the Son. Now we certainly don't want to miss what is equally present in the text, that that element within humanity which makes God's drawing necessary. Christ has pointed that out when he he says they're grumbling. He's highlighted the reality of their unbelief. But what we're being presented with here by Christ's own voice is the glorious reality of God's sovereign grace. God's sovereign grace. In response to a group of people who came to Jesus and they were unbelieving and for their own sinful, idolatrous purposes, Christ, he holds out the reality that it is God's unconditional choosing of individuals before the foundation of the world that he would give to his son as a bride. Those of verse 37 that that says that they're given to the son, who verse 44 now tells us, cannot come unless the father draws them. It's not a general call. This is not a call to all people everywhere to repent. 
But this is an extension here of God's sovereign grace whereby he himself effectually calls those who he has given to his son. And the result of this calling, this drawing, is that those who come, those given to the son, the result is that they're raised to eternal life on the last day. So, so there's, there's a two-pronged, equally valid explanation as to why these Jews are not coming to Jesus and why they're not able to come. On one level, it's a matter of their will. These people are making real choices, real decisions. They're operating out of real hearts with real motives and desires. And the hearts they possess are devoid of saving faith in Jesus. And so they willfully persist in their unbelief and in their unfaithfulness. That's, that's one level. And that level is just as real and just as valid. On another level, if they're to come to God at all, at root, something must happen first. God must do something. God must draw them. God must actually teach them. He has to give them something that previously they did not possess. And verse 45 says, in this instance, that has not yet happened. Now let's be clear about what this text is not teaching. We have to be clear about what, what God's sovereign grace is, is not and, and I know that many of you can, can resonate with this, with this statement, uh, but most of the opposition that I've experienced to the doctrine of God's sovereign grace, especially as I was kind of first coming to understand and, and people were teaching me these things and showing me in the scriptures where God's word holds this doctrine out to me. It was, it was an interesting time, but most of the discussions uh, about these things that I was having with friends and family members and other church members at, at, at a previous church, uh, what, what needs to be pointed out here is that in this text, this is not describing a group of people who are clamoring to believe on Jesus to whom God then says no. This is not a group of people who want to believe in Jesus, but then God says sorry, you're not part of the elect, so I'm just going to close the door on heaven before you're able to run inside. Brothers and sisters, the Jews that he's talking to right then, nobody else. Not then, not today. Nobody's going to be able to use that excuse when they stand before God in judgment. This text is describing a people, many of whom had witnessed the miracles, benefited from those miracles themselves, eaten of the loaves, put that fish and bread in their mouth. They professed him to be the prophet and they even desired to make him king. But that in spite of all of that, in spite of having heard and, and all of those things that bore witness to who he is, when he opened his mouth and told them who he is and made his absolute claim upon their lives to be their God, the claims that they asked for, by the way, when he made those claims, they rejected him. They called him crazy. His own family called him crazy at times. And they tried to, they tried to take ways and think of how, how can I take what I already know about Jesus and how does that fit with what he's telling me now? And, and they just couldn't make it work. And so they refused of their own will. They chose to reject him. And they refused to believe on him. They refused to believe his word. You see, sovereign grace is not about a cold, mean God keeping people out of heaven. It's about a sovereign, gracious, loving, merciful God giving a people to his son and then drawing them graciously to his son so that they can be redeemed and spared judgment for their willful, intentional, hateful rebellion. Look at the description that Jesus gives in verse 45. <clears throat> he says, it is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught by God. 
I mean, think about who he's talking about, who they. Well, he's quoting from Isaiah 54, 13. Okay, and after declaring in Isaiah 53 that God is going to send his suffering servant who is going to bear the sins of his people and make intercession for them. There's immediately following that in 54 a call for singing because of God's promises of compassion and of healing and of love. He says in Isaiah 54, 8, we're not going to read the whole chapter, I'm just going to quote a few verses from there. With everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. He goes on a few verses later. He says, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. He says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. The context is that of a redeemed, restored, loved, kept, blessed people who live on the other side of God's judgment that was poured out on the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And it's those people who are taught by the Lord. He teaches them. D.A. Carson, he explains it this way. He says it's, it's not savage constraint, but the wonderful wooing of a lover. He's talking about when God calls, when he draws effectually. He says, otherwise put, it's by an insight a teaching, an illumination implanted within the individual. God is giving them an awareness of something of which they were previously unaware. You see something that you could not see. The Apostle Paul, he said it better than D.A. Carson. Carson, he said, he said it like this in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He said, For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He likens salvation to the creation narrative where everything was dark, formless, void. But then God said, let there be light. He says, that's what happened in our dark hearts. God, he, he shines in there. It's your little flashlight. He shines in there with his Jesus spotlight, his Jesus illuminating spotlight. He gives the knowledge of something we didn't have. He gives us a spiritual apprehension of his, of his glory, not subjectively out there, but objectively in the person of Jesus, in him. Something changes in you in that moment. Something changes in your estimation of this person. Your affections for this person. And hear me, it's not simply that he is true, but that he is worthy. He is worth pursuing. He is worth struggling and fighting against indwelling sin. He is worthy. Before God taught you this, such knowledge of God's glory was foreign. You couldn't see it, and thus nothing in you or me desired to come to the true and living God, no matter what was told us, no matter who said it. There was nothing compelling us to believe and live. God, by his Spirit, had to do this, and he has done it supernaturally, he has drawn his people. Sovereign grace, effectual calling. This is not an expression of the cold heart of God to keep people out of heaven. And neither is this the hard, dispassionate heart of God to force love on those who are unwilling. Rather, it is the tender, warm affection of the Father to give something to dead sinners so that they would see the glory of His Son and that they would come to Him and live. When these Jews, they, they, were grum they grumbled against Jesus, they rejected him. His response was to say, you can't come unless my father draws you. 
and they're not coming to Jesus, which the implication is it's because in this instance, in this moment right here, the Father is not drawing them. They're rejecting Christ, but also God is sovereign in what is happening in that moment. And all of their choosing, and all of their willing, and all of their decision-making, in this, in this instance, what we see is an example of God actually not drawing people to himself. Some of them are. His disciples, they'll be there, but even one of them by the end of the chapter is going to, well, he'll be there, but by the end of the book, he's going to betray Jesus. But it's an example of people not being drawn by God. Well, what about John 12? Doesn't Jesus say in John 12, he's, doesn't he say, I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself? Doesn't Jesus draw everybody at some point? Jesus does say that. However, that's a completely different section of John, a completely different context, given the context of John 12, that there were Greeks seeking to come to Jesus and that in response to their desire to come to him, Jesus, he illustrates how it's going to be necessary for him to die in order for those Greeks and not just them, but anybody else to come to him, for anyone to follow him, to receive eternal life. The context is clear. Jesus, he's speaking of drawing all kinds of people in that text. Whereas here... In the context of 644, he's speaking in reference specifically to those who have been given to him by his Father. He's talking about two totally different things. And those specifically drawn by the Father in 644, they're the ones who are raised to eternal life. We can't take something Jesus said in John 12, rip that out of its context, and then ignore the context that Jesus provides Right here in John 6, the drawn of 644 are those given to the Son. That's who he's talking about. And they're the ones raised to eternal life. <coughs> That's the qualifier as well as the assured outcome of all who are the drawn in the context of 644. This is a specific drawing, distinct, that happens differently than the general call that goes out to all people. What about this, though? What about John's purpose statement for his gospel? He calls us to believe and live. Well, that doesn't make sense, does it? He calls us to believe and live. How can that be a genuine call if ultimately you don't have the ability to come? If God has to draw me before I can come, well, I guess it's God's fault now that I'm going to hell. Hear me. <clears throat> the biblical fact that God's call is sovereign, that it is of his own choosing, and is effectual, that it works, that those that he draws come 100% of the time, that fact in no way contradicts the explicit clear call of John's gospel to believe and live. Nor does it affect our responsibility to heed that call. The Bible teaches, and though it doesn't use this word, the Bible teaches what is referred to as compatibilism. And what that word is talking about is the it's the affirmation of both the total, meticulous sovereignty of God and his governance over every event, every decision, every atom in the universe. It's all been ordained by the sovereign God. The Bible affirms that truth. But the Bible also affirms positively that man is a responsible, moral agent. Compatibilism is talking about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and that they're both valid, true, biblical affirmations. The Bible teaches both of these things. 
And they're compatible, not contradictory. We see this here in verse 44. Jesus, he tells the Jews, you can't come unless God does something. But then three verses later in 47, he's going to hold out to them the promise, the very people he's talking to. He's going to hold life out to them, and he'll say that whoever believes, if you'll believe, you will live. Jesus regularly rebuked people for, for their unbelief. The sovereign God of the universe, the, the one who created these people and ordained every moment of their life could turn around and in an equally valid way rebuke them for their unbelief and hold them accountable for it. The fact that God must draw does not make us robots. God has decreed that the way he exercises his sovereign will is through, in and through, the willful actions of his moral creatures. You are called by God to make real decisions for which you are really accountable, which really affect eternity, over which God is ultimately totally sovereign. And this means that even though God is sovereign, you must still repent and believe the gospel if you are to be saved. You must exercise your will and actively repent of your sin and entrust yourself to Jesus as Savior and King. And the promise, the promise of God is that if you will do that, He will save you forever. One of my old... Pastors used to say he will save you lock, stock, and barrel. He'll satisfy your spiritual hunger, your spiritual thirst. It's a promise. It's not a fake promise. The call of Jesus to these Jews is not an illusion as he consistently holds himself out to them and calls upon them to believe on me, believe on me, believe on me. God draws and you must come to Jesus. Verse 46 illustrates how this actually happens. Look at verse 46 again. <clears throat> Excuse me. He says, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. So this, this, this is interesting. Look at, the, look at the flow here. So they grumble. He says he came from heaven. Jesus says you can't come to me unless the Father draws you. But also... It's not that anyone has seen the Father except me. What's he talking about there? What, what, what's this, what does this mean? What, what does this have to do with, with God's drawing? Is this like an aside? Is this like some little commentary by John on the side? He's just kind of giving you a little side note? I don't think so. Again, y'all sh should get uh, D.A. Carson's commentary on John if you don't have it. It's so helpful. He was really helpful and uh, in, in just trying to understand what's going on here. I'm not going to quote him necessarily, but man, he was so helpful. How, how does God draw you? Is it, by, is it magic? Is it a magic Jesus lightning bolt? Does, does he just zap you when you're walking down the sidewalk one day? I think what Jesus is saying is that you don't go meet God and get taught by him over there and then come to Jesus over here. You must go to Christ himself. In other words, the drawing of God to believe upon Christ is not something that happens independent of coming to Christ. No one has seen the Father. You can't see him. You can't meet him. You can't learn from him apart from the mediating work of Christ. You don't get drawn by God over there and then come to Jesus over here. The drawing of God doesn't happen independent of coming to Jesus. You can only be drawn by the, by the Father in the context of the knowledge of the one who has seen the Father. The one who reveals perfectly who the Father is. This is one of the 
the, the greatest examples of compatibilism in the entire Bible. How does one come to Jesus? The Father draws them. How does the Father draw them? As God's glory is seen in the face of Jesus. You have to go to him and believe on him. That's part of the means of how God draws his people to himself. It's not, you're not out in a field by yourself and he hits you with a Jesus lightning bolt. You've got to go to Jesus. That's what he says. Verse 45, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, what? Comes to me. He is both the means and the destination. There's no contradiction here. It's not one or the other. God must draw you and you must come to Jesus. That's why he can genuinely call them again to believe and live in verses 47 and 48. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. He says to him, and, and as I read it, it's, like, it's almost like he's believing. He say, I am the bread of life. I really am. You really can come to me and feast on me and be satisfied if you will come. You see, he's not, he's not trying to smooth out his theology on the front end to make it more palatable on the back. He tells them exactly who God is, exactly who they are, and exactly who he is. And he says, now, come to me. Come and live. How can we, how can we apply this? What, what does this mean for us, for you right now? One thing this means is that for those here this morning who have not come to Jesus, there is being with just Andre the Giant-sized hands held out to you, big, 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 real. There is being held out to you by the Lord of glory, Jesus himself, the most real, genuine promise that has ever been made that if you will go to Jesus, if you will come to him, if you will fix your hope fully upon Christ, upon his life and his death and his resurrection to be the only means of your reconciliation to the Father, he promises you that he will save you right now. He promises that he will satisfy you. He promises that he will give you eternal life right now. He promises that you will never be cast out, that he will never leave you. He will save you. He promises that. Will you believe on him? Will you fix your hope on him? Will you let go? of your own sin and idolatry, your own desire to be Lord and submit to God. God is not standing in your way. His sovereignty is not a hindrance to your coming to Christ. It's his kind providence and sovereignty that he has orchestrated every single detail of your life that has led to this moment right now so that you would believe and live his sovereignty is his kindness to you think about it you weren't born in some deep dark jungle where no one has ever heard the name of Jesus but God's placed you right here right now and he's speaking through his word. He's holding out his son to you. He's calling you to his son. Will you, will you believe on Jesus? Will you believe on him and live? Now we're going to try to move quickly through the remaining sections. The one big section with the little bits in the middle. Because we need desperately to see what Jesus is holding out to us in these remaining verses. Look with me again there, beginning in 49 through 55. He says, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. 
And the bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up. On the last day, for my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Jesus, he's about to take them deeper. Uh, for for, it's it's funny. Jesus sometimes, sometimes it's you're reading the Gospels and you're like, Jesus, you know they get it. Did you really have to say that? It's almost he's he's provocative. But he's about to take them deeper. In verse 49, he picks up the metaphor and he makes the comparison between himself and the manna that God provided. You know, they'd already pointed to this. But, but with the manna, Jesus, he points out what, what Matt told us earlier. It's, it's, not that, it's not that they don't need bread. It's that they died. They ate it and they still died. It's not that they don't need bread. It's that they need bread that can actually give them life. And Jesus, he points out that 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 manna was insufficient because they still died. They ate and they lived for for a while, but, but here's the problem, what it didn't fix. It filled their bellies for a little while, but here's the problem. They remained unbelieving and unfaithful. The bread they ate couldn't fix that. They still died. And so he says, yes, you need bread. You absolutely need bread. Every one of us here this morning more than anything needs bread. You need bread. But listen to me. You need true bread. True food. He actually, he, he gets clearer with them. He, he tells them what he's going to do. He says explicitly, the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You see, the bread is not a cracker. It's not the, the white-looking snowflake on the ground that you take and mix all together and make bread in an oven out of it. He says, the bread, the thing from heaven which God has provided to give you life is my flesh, this body. And when they argue about how that could be possible, he adds, it's not just his body, but my blood also. And to that, again, he doesn't stop. He says, then you know what else? You have to eat it and drink it. Oh, what? This is a direct reference to his death on the cross his flesh here think about this this is the same flesh we read about in John chapter 1 where it says that the word who was with God and who was God the creator of the universe Jesus it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and again going to reach back quote pastor Jordan's sermon last week that God took on flesh for a purpose so that he could become killable is what Jordan said. This God became man so that he could offer his body and his blood so that through his suffering in the place of sinners, dying under the wrath of God to bear the guilt and the penalty of sin for all who would trust in him. What does it mean? To eat his flesh and drink his blood. It means the very thing he's called him to in the preceding verses. It's the call to have your spiritual longing satisfied eternally in the eternal one when you believe on him and live. There's nothing else you could ever eat. Not even, listen to this, not even manna from heaven delivered from the very hand of God. If he gave you real bread, you would die. He's given you true bread, true food. 
And Jesus, he stands before them and us declaring, I'm the true food, I'm the true drink, eat me, be satisfied, drink deeply of my blood and live forever. There's no true life to be had outside of Jesus. The call is to believe and live. But now, I want us to look at this last couple of verses here, this last little, little section at the end of the broader second section, but beginning in verse 56, look with me there again. It says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats of this bread will live forever. Brothers and sisters, as we've come to that those last three verses of our text this morning, we've seen not only how it is that we come to Jesus, he doesn't cut any corners, he doesn't pull any punches when he starts talking about the sovereignty of God. We talked a little bit about what it it means to eat his body and drink his blood, but now Christ, he's, he's telling us how we actually live. He's telling us how it actually works. And amazingly, he... He tells us the the way that it works is also the thing that you get as a believer in Christ. And the word that explains what you get and how you get it is in verse 56. It's this word right here. One word. Abides. Abides. I'm going to read to you again from D.A. Carson on this this word, abides here. He, He writes... The verb remains or abides is important to John, defining not only relationships amongst Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but between believers in Christ. The mutual indwelling pictured here is obviously not precisely reciprocal. That the believer remains in Jesus means that he or she continues to be identified with Jesus, continues as a Christian, continues in saving faith and consequent transformation of life. That... Jesus remains in the believer means that Jesus identifies himself with the believer, but not in a reciprocal tr- trust and transformation. That would be absurd. That's, that's not how Jesus is staying with us, but in help, blessing, life, and personal presence by the Spirit. It's a big paragraph. Let me summarize that. When you are united to Jesus by faith, He communicates to you all of his goodness and everything you need for eternal life and none of your badness, weakness, failing, sinfulness gets communicated back to him because he nailed all of that to the cross. This is the essence of what it means to be united to Christ. Look at this. Jesus says in verse 57, you will live because of me. And get this, as a Christian, your life is bound up in the very one whose very life is bound up in the Father. Do you see this? You you as a Christian, if you've been united to Christ by faith, you have a direct link to the life of the Father in Jesus. This is union with Christ. You receive the the blessing and the benefit of union of father and son because of your union with Christ. Do you see what Jesus is holding out to these people here? You see what he's holding out to us in this room? There's nothing cold about this. He's, He's not merely giving them truths to affirm. He is offering them promises to believe. And to live in. 
When he beckons them to eat his flesh and drink his blood, he's holding out the promise of union between you and the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, and in him to be eternally connected to the life of the Father. This is true food, true drink, truly life-giving, truly satisfying to the deepest longing of our souls. Brothers and sisters, as, as we begin to close, the, the application to us this morning is this. As, as members of Grace Church, it's, it's eat and drink. It's believe and live. Those are not separate things. Would you eat and drink? Eat the flesh of the Son of Man. Drink His blood. Do that right now. This morning, do it this afternoon, do it tonight in your homes, do it before bed, tomorrow when you're at work, eat his flesh, drink his blood, when you're tempted toward those sinful thoughts, tonight, this morning, tomorrow, next week, a month from now, when you're struggling to believe the promises of God in the face of fear and uncertainty, eat and drink, when you're discouraged by the political happenings and cultural depravity that you see all around us, eat and drink. The next time you see an internet or news media celebrity, they're telling you that it's the end of civilization as you know it, eat his flesh, drink his blood. That's not going to satisfy you, those things. Christ is going to satisfy you. He's going to be rest for your soul. His promises are going to prove sure I'm saying actively consider and embrace or gaze upon Jesus. Actively consider and embrace his promises and trust him to provide what he has promised. To quote Pastor Jordan the final time, give all that you know of yourself to all that you know of him right now. Brothers and sisters, as I'm, as I'm closing, I want you to imagine Jesus speaking these things to these people. Picture his face. Picture his face. Picture his eyes. Picture his hands. Picture the clothes that he's wearing. Picture his face full of life. His eyes sparkling with the light of life, promising life to all who will come to him. You can almost see him glowing as he's telling these things to these people. Now I want you to imagine the dismay, the darkness that descended upon the heads of his followers when the one who claimed to be the very bread of life hung dead upon a cross. Imagine all hope dashed. Imagine every hope of eternal life extinguished with Christ's last breaths. What is to become of those promises? He said he would live. He said we would live. He said he would raise us up. But all there is before me is this cold, lifeless corpse. He said we would live, but, but he's, he's dead. He has no more life to give. Brothers and sisters, that's not the end. After the darkness of the crucifixion, the death of the bread of life, he was placed in a tomb and it was sealed and there Jesus lay for three days dead until on the third day that cold body became warm. That body began to breathe. Lifeless eyes opened, filled with the fire of victory. Pierced feet swung over the edge of the platform on which he lay and pressed into the dust on the floor of the tomb. Pierced hands pressed down into the platform as the Son of God stood up alive 
And don't you know that the entire unseen realm fell to their knees, as will all of creation very soon. Brothers and sisters, eat and drink. We don't live because we're abiding in a dead man. We live because we're abiding in a living man. A resurrected man, the Son of God. We live because we're in, abiding in the very author of life. The very bread of life. The one who owns his ministerial priestly work by what Hebrews 7.16 calls the power of an indestructible life. How can he give you life? That's why, right there. We live because we're abiding in the one who Revelation 1.18 says holds the keys of death and hell in his hand because he conquered them. He owns them. They're his servants. They're defeated enemies who must bow to the living one. They must bow to the bread of life himself. And so brothers, really now, let us close with Christ's own words. He said there at the end, This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Brothers and sisters, eat and live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending the bread from heaven so that we may eat and live. Lord, do it. Do it, Father, please. Amen.